Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. In today's episode, we meet best-selling author Mary Beth Whalen, whose recent book is Only Ever Her, a novel that pulls a town apart in search of a young bride-to-be. It was supposed to be the perfect wedding until Annie Taft disappeared. While loved ones frantically try to track her down, they're forced to grapple with their own secrets, leaving them to wonder how well they really knew Annie and how well they know themselves. We start the show in this character-driven novel two weeks before the wedding with the author reading an early section of the book in Annie's point of view where we learn that the killer of Annie's mother may be released from prison. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. These are the stories that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. It is a short letter, not a lot to it really, but long enough to levy the right amount of guilt to get her here for this meeting to talk about doing a small favor for the man she's grown up believing murdered her mother. But what if he didn't? Her stupid conscience keeps asking this one unending question, one she has to entertain before she can start a life of her own, a life away from here. That is part of her plan with Scott, get married, move somewhere else, start fresh. At the time they devised it, it sounded like a good plan, but the closer she gets to leaving, the more she wonders if she can. She inspects her face one final time before flipping the visor back into place and stowing her cosmetic bag in her purse. Her stomach rumbles and she thinks about her lunch appointment, another thing she doesn't want to do but feels obligated to show up for. If she isn't careful, she's going to be late for that. If the attorney is in and does want to talk, she might miss her appointment altogether. She can't decide which would be worse, talking to the attorney who is trying to get Cordell Lewis, the man currently in prison for her mother's murder, released or showing up for an interview with a reporter from the town paper to talk about her wedding. Annie is certain the reporter will find a way to also ask about Cordell Lewis's upcoming hearing. She suspects that this is what the reporter really wants to talk about, that this interview is just subterfuge. She and Laurel, the reporter, went to high school together. Laurel was always the aggressive type, and Annie doubts she's changed much in the eight years since graduation. If anything, her years away from Ludlow working for larger papers has probably made her more relentless. Lewis's release is a bigger story than Annie's wedding, after all. Annie wouldn't put it past Laurel to pull something like that. She will have to be on her guard. She makes her decision and turns off the car, deciding that she will do what she came here to do. 
Selecting the lesser of the two evils, she will go in and talk to. She looks down at the letter again to double-check the name of the man she has come here to see. She reads the signature line, imagines telling the receptionist that she is there to see Tyson Barnes. The receptionist will either say, oh yes, he's been expecting you right this way, or she will say, I'm so sorry, but he's in court. Would you like me to let him know you stopped by? Whatever the outcome, Annie must go through with this. She must go and hear what this attorney has to say about Cordell Lewis, who has spent the last 23 years in prison for killing her mother. According to his letter, Tyson Barnes thinks that Cordell Lewis is innocent. He thinks he was wrongly convicted all those years ago and that Annie was part of the witch hunt that made the wrongful conviction stick. He wants to talk about what she can do now as a 26-year-old woman to make up for what she did as a three-year-old child. He thinks she can help set things right. Annie knows one thing, nothing can set things right. No matter what she does or does not do, her mother will not be there when she walks down the aisle in a matter of days. Her mother will not wear a mother of the bride dress that is slightly dowdy, but appropriate for the occasion. She will not give Annie a fair family heirloom to be her something blue. She will not offer marriage advice based on her own years of wisdom because Annie's mother did not have years to grow wise. Lydia Taft died when she was just 23 years old. She didn't even get to live as long as Annie herself has. Okay, Tyson Barnes, Annie says aloud in the car. You've got 15 minutes, and that's all you get. Then she opens the car door and steps out. Mary Beth Whalen is the author of Only Ever Her, When We Were Worthy, The Things We Wish Were True, and five previous novels. She speaks to women's groups around the U.S. and is the co-founder of the popular women's fiction site She Reads, where she and her co-founder expressed their belief that story is the shortest distance to the human heart. Mary Beth and her husband Kurt have been married for 27 years and are the parents of six children. Mary Beth divides her parenting and writing time between the suburbs of Charlotte and the coastline of Sunset Beach, North Carolina. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Mary Beth, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You are the parent of six children and eight novels, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I guess t- talk about that ratio a second. You know, well, six children and eight novels. I, I guess uh, I, I do keep up with what novel it is based on on the kids and their ages and when it came out, and it helps me to keep track of things. So people say, hey, "What number novel is this?" And I can kind of go back and go, "Well." This one came out when this one was this age, and it's weird, but I do a lot of my timing about my life around how old my kids were. Yeah, it's six kids and eight novels, and I'm glad it's not the reverse. <laughs> are you, well, I was going to ask you, are, you, are the kids going to catch up with the novels, or are the novels going to ex- continue to exceed the kids? No, the novels will exceed the kids. <laughs> that ship has sailed. Okay. Well, um, so h- how do you do that? I mean, how do you raise six children and write? eight novels. That was my wife's question this morning when I told her about this ratio. She said, how the hell does she do that? (laughs) Well, I I mean, I have to say at first it was a hobby. It was, you know, like somebody might have, they might quilt or paint or do something. You know, I think we're all creative in our own ways. And my creativity has always come out in writing. And so if I got a few minutes to myself, which was rare, uh, I would just grab a notebook, legal pad, whatever it was, and and work on whatever story was in my head. And there was always a story in my head. There always has been since I was little. And that went on my whole, you know, young parenting years when the kids were little. That was always kind of my my release, my creative outlet. And then 
When my youngest was three is when things really started to change because I, you know, they get to a certain age where you're not panicked if they go missing for a few minutes and <laughs> mm-hmm. that all, that all kind of changed and I was able to sit down for longer stretches of time and mm-hmm. that was my first novel, turned into my first novel because I would just go write and then I got more consistent about that same story because I used to start and abandon stories all right, the time. Right. A lot of abandoned stories out there. <laughs> a lot of abandoned stories. Yeah. And so I would, you know, dabble in that. And this, the one that ultimately became my first novel, The Mailbox, um, that one was the one that stuck. And I just hung in there and kept writing and kept writing. And then yeah. the rest is history, as they yeah. say. So what got you into writing? I, I say that's what I came with. Like we yeah. all get something, and that's yeah. that was what I. That's all I have. All the way back to when you were young. As as young, I mean, as young as I can recall. I mean, as soon as I learned how to write words, I had a notebook and a pen with me at all times. Harriet the Spy, uh, yeah. the children's liter- literary character, uh, was my hero because it was somebody like me who. She carried that notebook with her everywhere. And when I read that book as a kid, I was like, oh, there are people like me out there. Because um, mm-hmm. I just recorded the world around me, and I thought in terms of stories, and I made up stories in my head. Do you still carry a notebook? It's right in my purse right here. <laughs> <laughs> so if we looked in it right now, what would we find? <laughs> uh, mostly lists of to-dos, uh, uh, to be honest. Okay. I have a, a lot of plates spinning. Um, yeah. The business side of writing, the writing side of writing, the kids, the house, all of that. So, yeah, mostly I, I have to write everything down that I need to get done. <laughs> Do you like checking things off? Oh, so much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm such a type A firstborn. <laughs> and, and, I mean, that actually probably feeds into yeah. how, how I juggle it all, too, is I'm very um, self-disciplined, I guess, and very driven to accomplish things and, mm-hmm. you know, take care of tasks and all that. So one of the things I mentioned in your in your bio was – she reads. Uh, talk about that a second. Yeah, it's it's uh, something that my best friend and I started. Uh, we are now both published authors, but at the time we started, we were not. We were just two best friends who loved, loved books and read all the time. And we would, w- what we found, she was in Texas at the time, uh, in North Carolina. And in our respective spheres of influence, we would recommend books to people and then they would come back and say that was a great book give me another and so we ran kind of our own little makeshift library out of our homes and to this day if you come to my house you're probably going to leave with a book in your hand that's just mm-hmm. you know I, I i really think there's a book for everything that you yeah. tell me well you, you gave me three books so. uh, yeah there you go there you go <laughs> that's right uh but i mean this organization uh it, is it for women writers is it uh no, it says it, she reads, so he can't read. Or what? <laughs> <laughs> we, that's just, I don't know. That's just the yeah. name we came up with. Yeah, yeah. It sounded funny. Because it's the, two, the she, two she's that put it together, right? Yes, yeah. yes. And, I mean, I think the statistic, I don't know how reliable this right. is, that like 85% of books are bought by women. So, hmm. you know, we're, we're, I guess we're trying to corner the market yeah. in saying she. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, basically we took what we were doing in our own homes and put it on the Internet. I mean, we, the same thing where we're saying you have to read this book. And that's that's what we do. So it's kind of like just telling people about books that you liked and mm-hmm. that you'd read, mm-hmm. yeah. and okay. authors sharing authors that that we feel efficient, like especially sort of, fond your, of sort of your own Goodreads, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So you write, um, Marybeth, you write very sort of what I call character-driven novels. You and we'll talk about some of the characters in your book here, and you know it's ordinary people dealing with difficult situations, right? Mm-hmm. So what comes first, the idea for the story or the character? 
That's kind of a complicated answer. I, I, I'll try to answer it as, as uh, simply as I can. For me, I have, and this sounds so crazy even when I say it out loud, but I have kind of a, I call it the waiting room in my head. And it's, if you can just picture a waiting room and there's all these characters that are just hanging out in there. And they come to me and they're like, I have the story I have to tell. And they have their own thing that they're working through. And I kind of just say, okay, have a seat. And I, there's just a waiting room full of these people. And so I'll come up with a scenario. So, for instance, only ever her, a bride goes missing four days before the wedding in this small town in South Carolina. And it's the wedding of the year. So when I came up with that scenario, I kind of go to the waiting room and I look around and I go, okay, who's in this story? And I pick. And I know that sounds really strange. It's like making a soup. <laughs> you know, and you just pull the ingredients and I'm like, okay, you work for the story, but it, it just kind of all comes together. I can't explain how it happens, but eventually it does. And I'll, you know, dabble with ideas and, and pull a character in and go, eh, you're not the one for the story that might be down the road. And so that's, that's how I make right. it up. So how, how do, how do people get in your waiting room? Are you, you observer of people and. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, definitely. I'm observing people, um, meeting people, hearing, you know, people tell you their stories, especially if you're a writer. They're like, let me tell you this story. And I'll just go, okay, now that is an interesting character. And I'll mm-hmm. just, and it's never just that, it never stays at that one thing. It, it just morphs into something else, someone else. I might get an idea from a real person, but they always become their own, their own person through through time and through the course of the story and seeing what happens to them. So a little bit about the book itself. We're going to get into the sort of the four, four main characters of this book in a little bit when you do some more reading. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the plot for a second. You've got a – you drop a convicted killer of Annie Taft's mother on us very early in the book. You just read – you read part of that. And then he gets released from prison, and then Annie disappears, and then it's unclear how or why she disappeared. Um and then you basically sort of dive into the lives of all these characters, right? Mm-hmm. As they're searching, mm-hmm. right? And everyone seems to be searching for something in this book, right? Yeah. Was that your goal? <laughs> well, you know, it, it's so funny. I, I'm sometimes I'm a little slow on the draw, yeah. and it, I'm usually well into a book before I realize what I've done so inadvertently. Re- and in this, and by done you mean the underlying theme of the book, right? Right. right. So you're talking about you're thinking about telling a story. Someone's gone. They're disappeared. We got to catch them. But then, are you saying that the theme of the book, the the real why the book sneaks up on you? Always, always. I, I don't set out to have a theme. It, it's right. always. It. But the really sad part about my brain is that it took me a while to figure out that I was writing about people who were lost. That right. in their own way, each of these characters is lost. Yeah. Annie is lost. Yes, that's the impetus of the story, but all of these characters, in their own way, are lost and and need to be found. So, I just wrote a couple things down. They're searching for Annie, number one, but they're also searching uh, for their life's purpose, for how to get beyond certain relationships, and in some cases, for how to form new relationships. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a search by four, five, or six different characters in this book, right? right. Right. They're and all they're all lost. It's pathetic how long it <laughs> took me to figure that out. But once I did, I was like, oh, well, that's cool. Uh, well, when you set out on these searches with your characters, um, do you know where each of them is going to end up? Mostly. I always know the ending of the story. I don't write the first word until I know the end. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got to yeah. know that. 
and is that the type a that's totally type a yes i'm big plotter have it all i have it all outlined before i write the first word okay um however that's there's a lot of writers that don't like that because they say it takes the kind of the fun the discovery out of it but for me i still discover so much through the course of of writing a novel the one i'm working on you're sort of a soft outliner with the idea to let your talents take you where they take um, you yeah. I, I mean i'm a I, I do have a pretty extensive outline oh, you I, do? yeah I have, but you're not afraid to, to vary from it as you go I, yeah i would vary from it if that if that maybe arose. we're talking about two different things maybe you don't vary from the plot but do your characters sometimes vary in where they're going with the with the problem things that get revealed like if i'm writing a dialogue scene they'll say something or do something that I didn't see coming. Okay. And that creeps my husband out really <laughs> a lot. He's like, they're your characters, but they do. They they surprise me. And that's the part that that does keep you. I mean, I think it would feel kind of rote if you were just, you know, writing according to outline strictly. But uh, I still have these moments of surprise. I understand exactly what you're talking about because I was a trial lawyer for 35 years, and they said, don't ask a question that you don't know the answer to. Well, in the books that I wrote, I have some legal courtroom scenes, and, you know, I would come home at night, and I'd put somebody on the witness stand. I'd start asking them questions, and they'd, they'd say something I wasn't, wasn't prepared for, you know. Which is a really cool <laughs> moment as a writer. It, yeah, it, yeah. it charges you in a way yeah. that the stuff you know does not. Yeah, okay. So um, let's shift to the characters for a second. We've got four sort of central characters. There's Kenny, uh, Laurel, Clary, and Faye, and other than, of course, Annie, who's disappeared. Right, <laughs> right. On. She's not in the novel all that much. <laughs> right. Um, start with um, Kenny. You're going to read a little bit about Kenny in just a minute, but um, tell us about Kenny. Oh, well, I love Kenny. I, I, I feel sorry for him. I understand him, and uh, he's just he, – he's kind of – he can't seem to get out of his own way and mm-hmm. it's hurt him in life and he carries a lot of baggage from his past and Annie always helped him with that and she understood him in a way that no one else did and that made the boundary lines of their relationship confusing especially for him and so he's sorting that out in this mm-hmm. novel all right so we got a little reading here I'm gonna have you I'm gonna have you read that okay That he has found a girl who puts up with his relationship with his mom is nothing short of a miracle. A pretty girl, a girl who has a good job, also in IT, so they have that in common. A girl who actually understands what he does and doesn't just nod vacantly when he tries to explain about a problem he had with siphoning data off a back-end database. A girl who doesn't gripe about the times when he is silent, who doesn't insist he constantly share how he feels. A girl who knows what it is to feel awkward around other people because she is sometimes awkward herself. A girl who thinks that his devotion as a son is an indicator of what his devotion as a husband will be. And yet he has not asked her to marry him. He hasn't put a ring on it, as the song says, like Annie intends to do. His mind goes back to last night, even though he has spent the better part of the day trying to keep it from doing so. He recalls the look on her face, that one that made her look like everyone else, and not the girl he loves. He feels the rage that welled up inside him, unbidden and uncontrolled. She saw it at the same time he felt it. Then he sees her running away from him. Now she does not answer his calls, and the clock is ticking until she gets married, and they can't be secret best friends or anything else anymore. 
He fears that last night was actually the end for them, that their longtime friendship is over sooner than he expected it to be. He thought he had more time, but isn't that what everyone always thinks? A car goes by, and he looks up, feeling caught, feeling guilty, an old feeling he spent his adult life trying to outrun. But he isn't that fast. He never was. He blinks as he watches Hal York's truck drive slowly past him. York spots him, and Kenny does his best to stand up straight and meet the sheriff's eyes until he is all the way past him. Just look people in the eye, Annie used to say to him. I know you're shy, but people don't know that. They think you're hiding something. Can you do that for me? She'd made him promise he would. She was always asking him to do hard things, and now she's asking him to do the hardest thing he's ever done, to let her go. So Mary Beth Kenny is the uh, he's that guy in high school that uh, is the best friend, but uh, she doesn't want to take it any further with him, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and he's smitten a little bit. But I love your line here: "He hasn't put a ring on it," as the song says. Randy Travis, right? <laughs> um, was that Randy Travis? I think I, the song or, I was thinking of, I think is Beyonce. Oh, I know what I was thinking of. Randy Travis was uh, on the other hand. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But there's a golden, there's a golden band, band. Yep, on, on yep, the other hand. Yep. <laughs> that gets more into the okay, you're married, but you know, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we got Beyonce working here. Um, so we got Kenny. Um, he's going to figure into the search quite a bit, and mm-hmm. then his girl. He's got a girlfriend too, so he's going to have that going on, and she's going to be jealous of him, even though he's just trying to find. Annie, but then um, there's another character, and you alluded to her a little bit, I think, in the early read, Laurel, right? Mm-hmm. Because she's the reporter. She's back in town. She's the reporter. Tell us a little bit about her. She sounds kind of type A, you know. Sounds like she's she's yeah. very type A. Yeah, and she's probably got a list like you do. Yeah. She most certainly has a list. Yeah. She's also, I love Laurel because she is not happy that she's back in this town. This is not her plan. This is not where she wants to be. And she just finds everything about this town absurd and beneath her. And so when she gets assigned this, this story at this paper, it's just a little small town paper. I mean, she, at, at one point in the novel, she says, you know, their high school newspaper was better than this paper. You know, it's just ridiculous and, <laughs> right. and not at all what she wants to be doing. But she's doing it, and she gets assigned this wedding to cover. And this is, you know, she wanted to be, like, on battlefields and, and you know, Right, photographing these poignant human moments, and she's covering. She, a she small was the town one wedding. in high school most likely to succeed as a reporter it, outside of this small town. Ag- exactly, and, and she, she finds herself back in this small town. Yeah. And there's a couple of times, you know, she alludes to how vocal she was about it. You know, I'm going to see the world. You're going to mm-hmm. see my pieces all over. I'm going to win, you know, awards, and th- none of that has happened. And so when she covers this small town wedding, it's it's just an affront to her. But what happens is this case becomes, you know, as often happens in a missing persons case, especially, you know, a a young pretty woman gone strangely missing, it becomes a national case. And so because of her position as being a hometown girl and knowing the family like she does, she's sort of thrust into sort of the story of her life and very quickly has to adjust how she looks at this town and what's going on and the Mm -hmm. people that she knows. And what you're going to read now, early on in the passage, mentions Damon. He is the son of the person who owns this paper, right? And yes. he's kind of running it. And so he, she doesn't much care to 
be working for him. So no, she's I, she's so offended by okay. his very existence. Okay, well let's let's read that little segment then. Okay, sure. She grimaces when she sees Damon's number on the screen. It's awfully late to be calling her, and definitely not professional. She will scold him if this is for something stupid. Maybe he's drunk and has dialed her by mistake. He's probably trying to hook up with someone, looking for a booty call, and hit Laurel's name instead of some chick named Laura or Lauren. Though she thinks he looks like exactly what he is, an overgrown frat boy, he definitely has his share of interested girls, based on his Instagram feed. Not that Laurel cares. The only reason she's even seen his Insta feed is because of the social media work she's been doing for the paper. Trying to bring them into the 21st century and not stuck in the 80s forever. She had to tag him in a post one time, and she had the paper follow him, just for good measure. Hello? She answers the call just before it rolls over to voicemail. Laurel? Damon asks, surprising her with the admission that he knows who he has called. Yes? She asks, intrigued now. She braces herself for exactly why he has called. Sorry for calling so late, he says, sounding like a grown-up, but I wanted to tell you about a rumor I heard. Thought you might want to look into it. Okay, she says. The word rumor piques her interest. If he tells her the rumor is that the library is moving the book sale to another date, she will throw her phone across the room. Word on the street is that you aren't the only person who can't get a hold of Annie Taft. No one can. She thinks about this. About how Faye spoke to her today. How frazzled and prickly she acted. Maybe it wasn't because she didn't like a reporter asking questions about the wedding. Maybe it was because Faye was worried about her niece because she couldn't find her. I think you should poke around tomorrow. See if you can find out anything. If Annie Taft is really and truly missing, we have the makings of quite a story. Maybe she's just a runaway bride, Laurel says, trying for a rational explanation. She's heard this happens. Hell, they even made a movie about it. She pictures Julia Roberts riding that horse in a wedding dress. But in her mind, it's Annie on the horse. Annie making her getaway. But why would it? But what would make Annie want to run? By all accounts, she's marrying a great guy and having a beautiful wedding. But if there's anything Laurel knows, it's that nothing is ever as it seems. There's a pause as Damon thinks this over. Maybe so, but maybe that's a story in itself. Laurel tries to think if it would be appropriate to write about Annie being a runaway bride. It's not exactly the stuff of front-page news, unless it had something to do with Lewis's release. Then it would be. Bride cancels wedding in wake of suspected murderer's release. Yeah, maybe, she says. Either way, I'll look into it first thing in the morning. So, Mary Beth, is there a little bit of Laurel in you? Uh, there's a little <laughs> bit of me in every character there, I, was I write. Gonna, yeah. I was going to ask you, how, yeah. do you just put little pieces of you in different characters? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Laurel has got... Uh, this thing with Instagram, you do too, right? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I do love it. You were telling me all about that. So she's checking the Instagram feed in this in this section, and you keep throwing back in uh, Cordell uh, Lewis. We don't see much of him, but we hear mu- we hear a lot about him mm-hmm. during the book, right? Mm-hmm. Keeping us off balance as to yeah, what, yeah, you don't how, know how he's involved if he is and so forth. Um, now, one of the things we hadn't talked about is that Annie. Uh, is being raised uh, by her aunt, okay? Mm-hmm. And she has a cousin that she lives with named mm-hmm. Clary. And uh, Clary's got her own problems, right? Um, and her relationship with, we'll talk about her relationship with Annie a minute. You want me to yeah, just, just t- address t- it? Yeah. Well, they're kind of de facto sisters because they were raised from very young ages. I mean, they were three and four when um, Annie's mother died and, and Faye, her aunt, 
uh, and you find out why, it sort of moved to this town and, and took over as mom for Annie, took care of her. And so Clary's kind of been along for the ride ever since and didn't have a whole lot of choice in what happened to her, I mean, like any small child does, and has sort of been navigating what that means to her and her place in the world as a result. Uh, because obviously Annie has always attracted all the attention around what happened to her mother, and um, and this is something that feeds into the novel is that her Annie's testimony is what ultimately put Cordell Lewis in jail, mm-hmm. and I, th- I think I touched on that in, in the reading that I did for Annie, and so she gets a lot of attention, and she Annie does, and Clary resents that a little bit. Resents it yeah. and. And loves her cousin slash almost sister, but they're just like sisters. You know, they have their sore spots and and they fight and and so. And Claire is different. She's in touch with uh, the animals and the birds, right? Yes, yes. And, and that's not so much Annie's thing. Not at all. Annie yeah. doesn't. Nobody, her mom nor Annie, understand Clary's love for these doves and why they mean so much to her. And you learn more about that in the book. And. You know, she she always has her hair a what you know a different color, and mm-hmm. you know she's got tattoos and piercings, and she's just very different. Annie's this little sunshiny golden girl, and they just you know they picked different personalities very early on, and and each of them has kind of clung to it uh, for better or for worse. And, and to set up this next read, we probably should let the listeners know something else about uh, Clary, and that is that uh, with this resentment that she has she's starting to struggle now that Annie is missing with how she feels about Annie and what she'd be doing to, to help find her but in the midst of that one of her old boyfriends comes back to town and sort of takes over ministering to the town because her ex-boyfriend is now a, a, preacher, cel- a, a celebrity pastor a celebrity pastor yes. yeah the kind yes. that fills the congregation with hopeful message you know the generosity yeah. uh, the, the what do they call that gospel the, uh, the, the prosperity, prosperity gospel, gospel yeah yes. prosperity gospel he's, yeah so he's one of those one of those kind and so the scene you're about to read they're in i think they're at Faye's house and they're waiting for something to happen and she's having a conversation first with her ex-boyfriend's new wife right yes. okay yes. Well, let's let's pick it up there okay you're worried about your cousin a voice says which is a reasonable guess. She looks to her left, and standing beside her, with a plate of ham biscuits and deviled eggs in her hand, is Travis's wife, Deandra. It doesn't sound like a pastor's wife's name, Deandra Dove. It sounds like a porn star's. How can anyone take her seriously with that name? Clary has watched her in Travis's church videos online, joining Travis on stage for some announcement or another, and once for a sermon on marriage. Clary had run from the computer, her hand over her mouth, She'd made it to the toilet before she threw up. Secrets make you sick, Annie had said in that last conversation. Annie can be so self-righteous. Clary knows Annie doesn't have any secrets, so it's easy for her to be sanctimonious about people who do. Yes, Clary forces a polite response to Travis's wife, very worried. With her free hand, Deandra Dove reaches out to pat her shoulder, the same shoulder that Minnie patted earlier. We are all praying so hard, she says. For Annie and for your family, Deandra's eyes float over in Travis's direction, then back to Clary. Especially Travis, she says. Clary offers a weak thank you in response, her voice thick in her throat. She does not want to be prayed for by Travis Dove's wife or by Travis. She does not want to be patted by Travis Dove's wife. 
she wishes Travis Dove and his wife would get in their SUV with the car seat in the back and drive back southward where they belong. But Travis is in his element, circling the room in pastor mode. She even saw him stop and pray with one of the cops, his baritone voice growing louder so that everyone in the room lowered their own voices and ducked, if not bowed, their heads. Clary wanted to go over and shake him, scream, Who are you? She recalls Travis at age 16, hanging over an overpass with a can of spray paint, painting their names across the side of the bridge as she shrieked at him to be careful. When he turned to look back at her, there was zeal on his face. The exhilaration of risk, of danger, as visible as the neon spray paint he'd used to proclaim his love for her to everyone who drove under the bridge that next morning. Later that day, Hal York had hauled him down to the station. You dummies shouldn't have used your real names, Hal had scolded. Travis, once her wild, fun instigator, has become an appropriate, measured responder. Instead of stirring up trouble, now he's helping people through it. She guesses this is to be admired, but there is something in her that can only hate it. Deandra Dove sticks out her hand. I'm Deandra, by the way, she says. Travis's wife, she adds, as if Clary needs that explanation. So Mary Beth, she doesn't need that explanation because she sounds like uh, a porn star. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have fun writing that line? That whole scene makes me laugh. (laughs) Yeah, I I was laughing out loud when I read that (laughs) that scene. And the other thing you do here is you you layer in all these different secrets that all these different characters have, which you start to reveal as we get closer to the end of the book. Um, Do those kind of come to you as you, you go, or is that part of the outlining process? That's I have to know what they're hiding before I start writing. Okay. Um, now, right. more gets revealed, like I said, kind of those little things that surprise you along the way. But right. the main stuff, yeah, like that, I have to have to know. All right. Well, when we come back in just a second, we're gonna uh, we're gonna have a little short reading and talk about the fourth main character of the book. Her name is Faye, and she's the caretaker uh, of, of Annie Taft. We're also gonna do the writing life segment, and we're gonna talk about uh, the other couple of recent books that uh, Mary Beth has written. So. Stay with us. Hey, listeners, we're here at the Robinson Spangler Carolina Room uh, at the Uptown Branch of Charlotte McMahon Library. I'm here with the historian resident, Tom Hanchett. Tom, how you doing? It is great to be here. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. So tell me about this wonderful space. We've got a great resource for Charlotte. Well, I've been using it ever since I came to Charlotte in the 80s to work for the Landmarks Commission, and then I worked for about 16 years across the street at Levine Museum in the New South. We use the Carolina Room all the time. Don't have to be a member of the library. Don't have to have a library card. You just come up to the top floor of the downtown library. It's almost the entire top floor, and there are books. They have uh, nearly every book that's been written about Charlotte, Mecklenburg, surrounding counties, uh, music. They've got a collection of CDs, LPs of music of the Carolinas. Uh, they have um, maps, um, genealogical records. If you're into Ancestry.com, they'll even help you figure out your way through that web resource. And my favorite resource is CMStory.org, which you could look up right now. You can right put now. a pause on this. <laughs> look up CMStory.org, photographs, maps, um, written histories, a lot of stories about our region. Well, we're all about books on uh, Charlotte Reader's podcast, and when I walked in, I noticed that there was just... There's shelves and shelves of books up here. There's something else up here, too. It's called microfish. What is that? Oh, they're little <laughs> tiny fish. They're like the um, the fish that you get from um, yeah, yeah. The, the, the little crackers, yeah, the yellow but, crackers. But they actually have You're not old... allowed to eat them here, so, so don't plan on doing that. But if you really want to go back in time and see what they 
published in the local newspaper in, say, the 1900s or even before. You can find it on those fish, right? Yeah. Microfish and microfilm, uh, to be serious, are a tremendous resource here. Um, they've got city directories. They've got um, almost every newspaper published in Charlotte back to the beginning. And through the website, through the library website, you can access the Charlotte Observer online, word searchable back to 1892 so you can look up all sorts of stuff through the Carolina River. Well that's awesome. Well listeners we're going to be back with Tom in some uh, future episodes more of these uh, mid-roll spots uh, you can find out more about the uh, this wonderful resource at cmlibrary.org Thanks Tom. Charlotte Readers Podcast and host Landis Wade are grateful to you for listening to this show. If you like the show please leave a short written review on Apple Podcasts also known as iTunes or the podcast platform of your choice because your review helps authors share their stories with more listeners. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back with uh, Mary Beth Whalen, author of Only Ever Her and uh, seven other novels which she wrote while raising six children, <laughs> which she's still raising and she's still <laughs> writing. Um, it needs to be the title of your next book, Raising Something, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk about Faye for just a minute. She is the aunt. She's been raising Annie. Tell us about Faye. I, I love Faye. She, I always liked when I got to write her, uh, her part because she's funny and she's a little irreverent and beautician, right? She's, so she's a beautician. Gossip, and yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Totally channeling, channeling my uh, Steel Magnolias uh, <laughs> Truvy's hair salon. Okay. And uh, just, I, I, I like her spunk, and but I also like that she, she struggles with a lot of kind of like Clary and the question mm-hmm. of, did I do the right thing by coming here? You know, I didn't didn't necessarily have to do this the way I did it. And she's looking back, and there's a lot and of— And by coming here, you mean coming to the small town. Coming to Ludlow. And you reveal later why that is yeah. and how she got here and then— And why. And why, yeah. yeah. But but And we're at a part in the book now, sort of a dark chapter in her life. Uh, Annie's missing. She's starting to second-guess whether she's done a good job raising the daughter of her sister. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't you pick it up there? She lost Annie once when she was little just the one time, which she thinks is a pretty good track record. Throughout Annie's childhood, she felt Lydia there, watching her, judging her performance, rating her motherhood efforts. Lydia, the not-so-angelic angel on her shoulder, saying things like, you sure that candy is a good idea? You don't want her to get a cavity, do you? Or, how could you forget to sign that paper? Now she's not going to be able to go on that field trip. Or, you lost my child? I trusted you with her, and you lost her? Things like that. Lydia, her annoying sister in life, could be just as annoying in death if you got right down to it. In her own defense, she turned her back for only a second. Isn't that what they all say? They'd been at the fair. Clary had tugged on her to go one way, and Annie had tugged on her to go the other. Clary wanted the carousel, and Annie wanted the tilt-a-whirl, the pair of them always pulling her in different directions, nearly splitting her in two in the process. She turned to scold Clary, She always scolded Clary first, always more comfortable faulting her own child instead of her niece, making Annie the perpetual guest in her own home. And she dropped Annie's hand when she did. Clary had argued. Clary always argued. And after she had finished with Clary, she turned back to speak to Annie. But Annie was gone. She can still recall what it felt like to look at the empty space beside her, then look past that space, to the right and to the left, to see swarms of people. To scream Annie's name as people gave her quizzical looks. To grasp Clary's hand so tightly that Clary cried out in pain. But she paid Clary no mind. 
She just called Annie's name louder, scanning the crowd. So many faces, and none of them Annie's. All the while, she could feel Lydia on her shoulder, shaking her head in disappointment. Though Annie was missing for maybe three minutes, they found her, where else, over by the tilt-a-whirl, where she'd wanted to go. It was the longest, most terrifying three minutes of her life. And that is what this feels like all over again. Except three minutes has turned into three days, and she cannot shake the panic, or the fear, or the sense of failure. She has let her sister down. Her poor dead sister who never got to live her life. The one thing she could do for her was to take care of her daughter, and she has failed at it. So we're at the part of the book where all is lost, right? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah, and you know, your books don't all necessarily have happy endings, right? I mean, it's it's different. You wouldn't describe it yeah. as happily ever after necessarily, but there are there are things that get found. Yes, and it's sort of true to life sometimes, right? And that's yeah. I try to be, you know, I I don't want it to be some saccharine contrived ending. I want it to end the way life usually works out, which is. Not everything comes full circle. Not everything falls into place. And so, especially with this book, I was very respective of that in all of our lives. You know, will it resonate with a reader? Because, you know, for everything to wrap up in a big bow is just, I mean, in my experience, right. probably in yours, yeah. not the way right. life works out. Exactly. However, so having said all that, I always try to end with a note of hope mm. and, and redemption and transformation going on in the lives of the characters and i and think you, and you have that, an arc so you follow the good storytelling your characters <laughs> have an arc right definitely yeah. definitely if they don't change then they're not you're not moving in the right direction right well change in some way i was gonna yeah. say i read the definition of a. I read that the definition of a tragedy is uh the characters don't change okay so if you look yeah. at uh pretty great, bo- it'd be like boring right yeah. well like the great gatsby you know when you get to the end of that book nobody changed and that's why that book is a tragedy. Mm. And so I don't write tragedies, so I, I always want to have. Oh, that so hope. you're speaking about tra- not tragedy in, t- in terms of the work itself, but you think it's a tragedy the characters didn't learn enough exactly. to change. Okay, right? Because we, w- I mean, because, we want yeah. to see people change. Right. You know, we want to know that this story affected them in such a way that they were changed by it. And so, if that happens to the characters, then that that's what's gonna. I mean, touches my heart when I'm a reader. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I want to see characters change. And so I do the same thing with when I'm creating characters. All right. Well, this little writing life segment we do, and I, <laughs> um, I throw different questions at the authors, uh, depending <laughs> upon how I'm feeling. Depending, yeah, oh, so, no. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, let's do – I like this sort of either or. We did this in the first season. It's uh, about your writing process. You can pick one or the other or neither or both. Okay. okay. Ink pen or keyboard? Ink pen. All right. Why? Because when I first started writing, I didn't have a laptop or anything right. like that. So I always just wrote longhand. So okay. when my brain sees an ink pen, it thinks we're having fun. When my brain sees a computer now, it thinks we're working. Uh, so sometimes to trick my brain, I'll, I'll get out of the old ink pen and go back to hobby mode. All right. In the light of day or the dark of night? Light of day. You prefer to write when the kids are in school. <laughs> yes. That, yeah, that goes back to you asking me how I do it. They go to school. Okay. Uh, complete quiet, little uh, music in the background. What do you... Always music and always the same Pandora channel I created when I wrote the first novel. Really? You, you have a certain set And now of songs? it's Pavlovian. Yes. Uh, if I turn that on, I, I will go into writer So mode. what are some of your songs on there? Oh, it's like all alternative, uh, like... British alternative <laughs> songs. It's very strange. It's all um, 
it's all my weird taste. There's an old band called the Blue Nile, and the channel is called the Blue Nile. Uh, But I've pulled in lots of other artists through the years. Interesting. Writing the first draft or revising it? Writing the first draft, for sure. You like that better? Yes, for (laughs) sure. Others say they like to polish and work on it. You're not that person. No, no. (laughs) Uh, uh, Writing the work or submitting it for publication? Writing the work. Yeah. Yeah. The business side of it is not something you enjoy as much. I mean, I, I enjoy it because obviously that's the goal. I mean, it's, an, it's it never gets old to see your name on the cover of a book. That right. the publication is part of the process for sure. I mean, I I don't I didn't write in a vacuum for no one to ever read it. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I, I I like that that piece exists. But again, kind of going back to the ink pen and the just the pure love of the craft again. That's mm. I like getting back to that. Couple of fill in the blanks. Who is your audience? Oh, gosh. <laughs> what is that? Women between the ages of 25 yeah, and 44. No, everybody in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Anybody yeah. who, who, do you, who, do you, who do you write for, I guess, is a different way to say it. You know? I, I mean, I write, I write for my friends. I write yeah, for my neighbors. Right. I mean, I, 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 you even put some of them in your books, right? I do. I do, yeah. You just don't tell them who they are. Yeah. I, well, some of them, like in this one, I have uh, – we have a, a – a couple that we're great friends with and their names are Tracy and Douglas. And so in this novel, there's a character named Tracy Douglas and I never told them (laughs) I did it until literally I put the book in her hand and she saw in the acknowledgements and she was just laughing so hard that I did that. So sometimes that's just the fun part of being a writer is getting to play with stuff like that. I had had a similar fun thing when I had one of my books, the legal legal book. And uh, I put a couple of my friends in law school in the story, but very briefly, they were carrying the briefcases of the lawyer into the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> so didn't give them a major role, just, you know, something to do. That's funny. Okay, fill in the blank. I write because. That's a good one. I write because I can't help but write. It's, like I said, it's, it's the way I think. It's the way I process the world, and I interpret everything through story. And I really do believe story is the shortest distance to the human heart. The first time I felt like I could call myself a writer was when... Gosh. You know, that took longer than it should have. Mm. Yeah, it did. It, and uh, that's something I really encourage, you know, now looking back. I should have embraced that sooner. Um, sometimes I still keep waiting for somebody to go, um, you should not be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's ever, the, the plight of every writer, though, to uh, some degree. Blank was my most memorable public event as a writer. It can be good or bad. Oh, goodness. <clears throat> it doesn't have to be your best. Just give us a memorable event that's your public I'll, event. I'll, I'll do the one I just did uh, last week just because okay. it's fresh on my mind. And also it was pretty poignant. When I was a kid, I was went to Davidson College uh, for a summer. It was like brain camp. I went there for four years. Oh. <laughs> Well, lucky you. Yeah, it, took me, um, it took me longer <laughs> t- to learn. <laughs> well, it was through the Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, and you applied and, and um, you know, got accepted or whatever to go spend the summer at Davidson. And so I was there for that summer. We'd go home on the weekends but live there in the dorms. And, you know, you're supposed to get the full college experience. Well, I you have to pick a specialty, and my specialty was, surprise, writing. Mm-hmm. And the professor that I had there, I – was doing an event last week at Davidson's bookstore called Main Street Books. And they wanted me to be in conversation with someone. And I looked 
online and sure enough the professor I had was still there and she agreed to be the person I was in conversation with hmm. so it was just such a neat full circle moment for me who, who was that uh, Cynthia Lewis yeah yeah she's okay. a professor of English there still is and she was so gracious and it was such a neat um, moment for me uh, not just because I got to see her again or whatever but because I was able to tell her some exact things she did that helped me as this, you know, 15, 16 year old kid. What kind of things were that? Um, well, she introduced me to what became one of my favorite writers, Lee Smith. And she had us read a short story, which started me reading her. And I still read her to this day and ended up, I went to NC State where she was a professor. And, you know, you just look at your path and how it gets set uh, just by these little seemingly random things. And I just wish I could go back and tap that 15, 16-year-old girl, girl on the shoulder and say, you're not going to believe how good this all turns out. You know, someday this is where you're going to be and this is what you're going to be doing. And uh, that was a really neat moment for me. That's great. Okay, one last uh, fill in the blank. If I could tell my younger writing self something very helpful, it would be? Goodness. I should have <laughs> I should have had these questions in advance so I would have something prepared. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to. I, see, <laughs> I know you're. This you're, is like sixty minutes. Is, yeah, yeah, this yeah, is like. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're, they're really good questions. Okay, if I could tell my younger writing self something, um, it all counts. Pay attention, and don't throw away all your old notebooks, yeah. you dummy. Because <laughs> yeah. I did. I threw them yeah. all away, yeah. and I there, wish I could have those back. Probably yeah. some good ideas in there that you could have fleshed out. Now, right? Well, just, you know, the voice of, a, of, right. a, of the different ages I was. Mm-hmm. And I just, I didn't know it was trivial to me. You know, it was just what I did. I didn't think a lot about it. And then I just tossed them all when I moved out of my home. We're going to talk, Mary Beth, just a minute about uh, a couple of books uh, you've written before we finish up, uh, other recent books. Um, and you're going to read from one of them. But uh, before you read from that one, tell us just briefly about When We Were Worthy. Hmm. When We Were Worthy is about a small town in Georgia where football is king. You know, it's the everybody goes to the high school game on Friday nights. And one night after a game, a carload of cheerleaders is hit head on by a boy who goes to the school. And it's told in the point of view of four people who are tied to those cheerleaders in some way. And kind of, I mean, I write aftermath stories. You know, so mm-hmm. I, there's always a pivotal event, and then I like to see what happens to the people that 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 event touches. Mm-hmm. And this, the aftermath story is these four people navigating what happened and how it affects their lives. And and, and you do that in, in the things we wish were true, which you're going to read from in just a second as well. But but that's not true for only over you because you kept us wondering about what where Annie was and mm-hmm. what it so that was kind of a mystery right a little bit so. a little bit in all in all three of, of the books we're talking about today mm. there's always a a little bit of a mystery there's always a little okay. bit of what really happened um with the with the cheerleaders that got hit by the car it's what really happened in that accident because there's kind of two sides of the story okay and who do you believe um so that's that's kind right. of the reveal for right. that one so the things we wish were true um Tell us about that. That one is, that's kind of the first of this sort of uh, genre, psychological fiction that I'm, I'm currently writing. 
Is that what you call it? Psychological fiction? I think that's what they call it. Women's you know, fiction, yeah. psychological women, fiction? Women's psychological fiction. I don't okay. know. Yeah, yeah. Psychological fiction is, I guess, where it kind of sits in the okay. genre. And there's a tragedy in this book, right? That, that, and this, yes. And you're dealing with an aftermath. With yes. That. And this, this story is actually based on something that really happened at our swim club. Okay. And if you visited my swim club where I live, you would recognize the setting of this straight mm. down the middle if there, uh, I, I didn't even embellish anything I wrote about my my swim club I you know write what you know and at our swim club there was a little boy who nearly drowned and in fact I write about this in the author's note at the end when it really I mean we all were impacted by it it's kind of one of those things in our neighborhood like you know mm-hmm. the John F. Kennedy where were you when moment mm-hmm. like the whole neighborhood can tell you where they were when the ambu- they heard the ambulance coming to the right, pool. because whose child is it? And, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it was a very um, impactful event in our neighborhood. And that was not what grabbed my attention, though. What grabbed my attention was a few weeks after that incident when that same little boy went up to accept his swim team trophy. And there was not a dry eye in the house. Mm. It was such a moving event. And sitting there, like, seeing everybody's faces and watching him, and that's where the story started percolating in my head in in that moment. All right, I'd like you to read. It's real short. It's about a minute to a scene um, in Lance's point of view in this Mm -hmm. book. And who's who's Lance, just so we know? Lance is – basically, the characters in this novel are all people that were present at the pool the day that this happened. And he's a a dad. He's single – and adjusting to what that means for him and never really thought he would find himself amidst these other mothers at the pool but that's where he is and that's he gets kind of sucked into the situation because he's a witness he was standing there staring into the water thinking about the beautiful woman's comment about finding camelot feeling like the furthest cry from a brave and gallant knight when he saw the little boy a dark shape gone still beneath the water it took him a moment to realize the child wasn't playing He wasn't seeing how long he could hold his breath or pulling a prank on his friends. Lance dove in without thinking, a reflex that extended, it turned out, beyond his own children. As he pushed deeper under the water toward the boy, he had two thoughts. What do I do now, and where the hell is the lifeguard? He reached the child in seconds, but it felt like it took half an hour to get his hands on him. Eyes wide, in spite of the way the chlorine was burning them, he scooped the boy up, just like he did when his own children fell asleep watching TV and he had to carry them up to bed. But this child wasn't sleeping. Unready for the heft of the boy's weight, the words dead weight flashed through his mind, but he pushed them away. He struggled for a second, his lungs beginning to burn as he dragged both himself and the child to the surface. At the surface there was air, there was solid ground, there was surely someone who knew CPR. He cursed himself for never learning it. From under the water he could hear the clamor as people responded to what was happening. A whistle blew, a child screeched, a woman yelled. He could make out someone yelling, call 911. You put this in a setting that you were very familiar with, right? In right. Your, in a neighborhood setting. So yeah. were people asking you about who these characters were? And oh, constantly. <laughs> and the funny thing is, I can always tell if, no, if somebody has not read the book. Yeah. Because they'll like say, well, I think I was such and such. And I'm like. Yeah, you didn't you, really read it. You <laughs> wouldn't want to be that person if you really knew what they were hiding. So, yeah, yeah. I always tease them. I'm like, go read the book and then tell me if you still think you're that person. All right. Well, that's great. Well, you, you, you kind of divide your writing time between Charlotte and the beach, right? So, yeah. 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 Does the beach inspire you in any way to 
to write these books or oh yeah much, oh, yeah. much more than Charlotte yeah. yeah well I mean I can't say much more than Charlotte because <laughs> yeah, yeah. Charlotte is where you know I, yeah. I, but that's I've where you, here my whole life that's where you can get away though right to, to yeah so that's where I get away and it's um the the, the ocean has always inspired me there's actually mm-hmm. a book called Blue Mind and it, mm-hmm. it's all about that it's about how water inspires us and and helps us and I find that to be so true Maybe that's why I like fly fishing, and maybe that's why I like being out on the ocean. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, in addition to Park Road Books and the library, where can we find your books? Yeah. Um, Independ- independent bookstores? In, and, yeah, yeah, independent bookstores. And if you if you call and ask for it, that's one thing, you know, a lot of readers don't realize. If you call and ask for it, they're usually more than happy to get it for you right. if, if they don't necessarily have it on the shelves. Yeah. So. Good. Uh, you got a website, right? I do. What is it? MaryBethWhalen.com. All right, and she reads. Is that still up and running? Yep, she reads. It, we still have a site. It's um, it, it's a good place to go as a jumping off point to find out where else we are. And um, that and that address is that's she reads Okay, and you are on Instagram. At, I am at, Mary Beth Whalen. <laughs> all right, okay, yeah. Um, well, look, Mary Beth, it's been great having you on the show. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we have Philip Gerard. Philip reads from and discusses his book, Cape Fear Rising, which was re-released this year on the 25th anniversary of its publication because it remains a story that needs to be told, especially in a time where there are places in this world where white supremacists are still on the march. Did you know that in 1898, black citizens held most of the city's government offices in Wilmington, North Carolina, And did you also know that a well-connected group of white citizens staged a bloody coup, fixing the 1898 election by threat and then killing and running many black citizens out of town? Phillips, the author of five novels, eight works of nonfiction, and numerous essays on history, music, and writing craft. For periodic updates about the show and upcoming authors, please sign up for the podcast email list at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We promise not to spam you, because Landis says that takes too much time. And if you do sign up as a thank you, Landis will give you an e-book complete with illustrations, his first in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can listen to Charlotte Readers Podcast episodes for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte Mecklenburg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is available on social media, on Facebook at Charlotte Readers Podcast, on Twitter at Charlotte Reader, on Instagram and on LinkedIn at Landis Wade. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.